I'm Jonathan Bastian. This week on KCRW's Life Examined, when ecologist and author Carl Safina rescued an abandoned baby owl they called Alfie, he never imagined how quickly she'd be part of the family. Well, the main thing was we did not want Alfie to be caged ever. And so when she was young, she was just loose all the time. She was Sometimes she was loose in the house. Often she'd be loose outside with us and she'd be hopping around. And later, what makes an owl an owl? Owls have eyes that are huge for their body size. And if our eyes were in similar proportion to our bodies as an owl's eyes are to its body, they'd be about the size of an orange, you know, and they'd weigh about four pounds. The magic mystery and folklore of owls with a detour into Greek philosophy and the concept of dualism. That's coming up on Life Examined. When it comes to birds, the owl is somewhat of an enigma. Whether you've seen one up close or just peered at a photo, owls are simultaneously beautiful, mysterious, fierce, spooky, and cute. And though their big, oversized eyes might endear us to them, the predatory skills of an owl might make very close proximity a little intimidating. Would owls even be remotely interested in forging a bond with a human? It was a question that unexpectedly confronted ecologist and author Carl Safina in his efforts to rehabilitate Alfie, an abandoned baby screech owl. And while Safina imagined his duties would be straightforward, namely preparing the bird to live in the wild, their relationship opened up much larger questions about philosophy, spirituality, and how we've come to feel so distanced from other forms of life. Carl Safina is a marine ecologist, writer, and the founding president of the Safina Center at Stony Brook University in New York. His latest book is called Alfie and Me, What Owls Know, What Humans Believe. Carl Safina, welcome back to Life Examined. It's great to have you. Well, it's a great place to be, and I really appreciate being with you. I'd love to hear about the circumstances of how you found this little owl, Alfie. Um, and and I, I take it from reading the book that you have taken in other animals before, and you live in a house of animals, but the story is is quite quite amazing how you found this little creature. She found us, actually. Someone, someone found her near death as a little chick, only about 10 days old, weeks away from the normal age for fledging. And they contacted a wildlife rehabilitator who was a friend of mine. I've done a lot of wildlife rehabilitation, especially when I was younger. Uh, so, so the rehabber contacted me saying, do you know what kind of bird this is? Sending me a photo of something that looked like a dead baby fuzzy something or other. I had to squint at it to see that, oh, this must be a screech owl. Mm. And, uh, I was very surprised that it was still alive. It it looked like it was in terrible shape. But with us going back and forth together a little bit on some advice and trying a couple of things, this little owl started thriving and came to us for a soft release in our backyard. That was the plan, and we named her Alfie. But the plan had a flight delay because probably from her near-death experience, she um, didn't really grow her wing feathers in properly. And I couldn't, you know, turn her out because she couldn't fly. So I held on to her through a molt from her juvenile plumage into her adult plumage to make sure that she was going to molt and that she would have the ability to fly and, and, you know, be an owl that could be an owl. What was just the experience of being around a, an owl? I mean, because to me, these are mysterious creatures and with a lot of kind of interesting mythology around them. But I, I don't even know if I've ever been near an owl. I mean, they seem to be so blended into the environment and quiet. And I think sometimes we think of them as solitary. And what, what did that feel like just to be with this type of a creature? Well, as I said, I I have done a lot of rehab. I've also raised a lot of different kinds of birds. I've studied birds a lot. Uh, I used to be a falconer, and I've cared for other hawks and owls. So what it was like is owls have a particular kind of a vibe to them. Mm. They're not as jittery as songbirds. They are um, a little more interactive than many birds because they have a, um, 
I don't know if I would say a higher capacity for bonding, but they, they bond in a way that is more recognizable to us. They, they like to preen each other, and therefore, um, if one is in your care, they like to be getting some preening from you. So there's, there's that kind of interaction and, uh, and, and their, their rate of movement, I, I would say, because they're just a, a little bit slower on things than some other kinds of birds, as I mentioned. Um, that's more relatable also. So they, you know, they have all this mythology around them, but um, to me, uh, an owl is a kind of a bird. That's what it is. And um, the, the mythology is irrelevant in the moment because I see a flesh and blood creature that has needs, that has wants, that has capacities for relating, that has a, a, a deep evolutionary history, it is frankly a much more interesting being than the mythologies and the caricatures about them. So then talk about the process of, of rehabilitation. I mean, what, what were some of the phases you went through and the way you were able to integrate this bird into your life? Well, the main thing was we did not want Alfie to be caged ever. And so when she was young and we were waiting for all the feathers to come out, which, you know, our expectation was that the birds seemed very healthy. I thought the feathers would come out normally. Um, she was just loose all the time. She was Sometimes she was loose in the house. Often she'd be loose outside with us. And... Um, she'd be hopping around and moving around and there was plenty of stimulation with her. She was raised um, with uh, our dogs, so she was not afraid of the dogs. And our, our dogs are not at all aggressive to small birds because they, they themselves were raised around chickens. So everybody was pretty peaceable. A uh, very interesting aspect of that is, is just how much recognition is involved because when a friend of ours came with a dog, uh, Alfie completely freaked out and acted as though the, the dog was a very dangerous potential predator, which, mm. of course, dogs could be. So the difference between dogs she knew and a dog she didn't know made a complete difference in her perception and her reaction. And then when the feathers did not come in correctly, I put her in protective custody by customizing part of the outdoor part of our chicken coop. We usually have anywhere between four and six hens. And I introduced Alfie to that space. And quite interestingly, I, I don't really, I don't know why, but um, she immediately got comfortable in there and never, never tried to get out, never started climbing the wire or probing for a weakness or in any way ever acting trapped in there. And, um, when her molt was successful, was getting to be winter when the, you know, the amount of food out there is, gets to be at an all-time low. I feared opening the cage and just letting her go when the likelihood of her starving was pretty high. So I kept her in there until in the following spring I started to um, do a little flight and hunting training with her, letting her out, letting her come to me, letting her chase chase a, a fake mouse on a string with a little food attached to it. So she would um, not only get the idea of that, that idea kind of comes naturally to them, but th there's a lot of skill involved in catching something that is trying not to get caught. So we were doing that. And then came the inevitable, very scary time for me of really completing that soft release that we had in mind. Mm. And a soft release means you you let uh, an animal, especially a bird, be free where they are already familiar with the territory rather than taking them somewhere and opening a crate and then driving away. Um, but she she took herself away. She disappeared for a full week. And I thought, all right, well, maybe that's it. That's kind of what I was afraid of, kind of what I expected. And maybe that's it. We, we did leave some food out for her, which is part of the softness of a soft release. But it was not being taken. She was definitely not around. And then a week later, at about 11 p.m., she showed up 
landed in a tree next to where my wife was sitting outside talking to a friend just a, just a few feet away and uh, never left. She centered her territory right around our backyard and then things continued to unfold from there. I should mention this also happened during the pandemic. And I, I, I wonder, not just in terms of you know, the ritual of learning to be with this creature, the, the, the logistics of all that. But what, what did you find that this bird was bringing into your life? Anything you didn't expect? First of all, the COVID shutdowns are entirely responsible for almost everything that I was able to see because in, in the year that was on my calendar, I would have been gone a lot. And the whole story would have just been, oh, this baby owl came to us, survived, and is nesting in a box in our backyard. Isn't that nice? Mm -hmm. Isn't that cool? And that would have been it. But because uh, everything got canceled for me, as for most of us, I had nothing better to do than go and find Alfie in the morning, watch her for two or three hours, do the same thing around sunset. I, I was watching her and then her potential mate for about five hours a day. And even though I made a living for 10 years studying wild birds, mostly seabirds, I started to see nuances in the development of their relationship and their bond, especially with her and her mate, that really surprised me. It wasn't that there's a female, a male shows up, they perform ritual behaviors, and then they breed. It, it was very tentative at first. There was not a lot of trust there. Alfie's, Alfie's trust and her desire to be near the male went from being kind of afraid at first to um, kind of standoffish. He would try to bring her gifts of food and at first she was not accepting them. And then um, they got more comfortable and more trusting with each other and they warmed up. So I, I, it wasn't just a, you know, a stereotypical courtship routine. It was the development of a relationship that was based on trust and comfort and the, um, I guess the expectations, she would come out of her day roost, she would start to call, this is after they, you know, pretty much had established a bond between them. She'd call and look for him, he would show up, I, I never knew where he was roosting, unless they were roosting together, and most of the time, he was not with her during the day. He would come from somewhere in the in the woods behind our house. They'd spend a little time together. He'd go catch something, usually a moth, and offer it to her. And, and then uh, after that got comfortable, came the time for physical mating. And she was totally unexperienced and was very awkward at first. And in fact, did not assume the the correct posture that would result in fertilization until one night i saw her do it correctly and and after that it was always correct and after that it started to be much much quicker much more eager um didn't even require him to go get a gift at first it was all became more routine and expectation. And I watched all of this develop in a way that was, you know, really so recognizable and, and so analogous to the way that relationships and bonds develop in humans. Mm. I was about to say, it was as if you could have told me there just a human story. There was something so so familiar in the courtship and the gift. So how did this begin to open up a much larger series of questions about our relationship to the natural world, the extent to which we have created a sense of dualism, it's, it's them and it's us. The, these are some really big questions that ultimately you get to in a book that you know people may think is about an owl, but it's about a whole lot more than just that. Yeah, well, a, an owl is about a whole lot more. Our, our whole relationship with the world is about a whole lot more. And as I said, I, I had made a living for 10 years studying wild birds, and I, I was surprised that I was surprised by what I was seeing. 
And I asked myself first, why didn't you know these things? And, and, uh, and of course, you know, sitting out in my backyard for five hours a day, so lots of other interactions with, with other birds, with the chipmunks, uh, with all of these things that, that, that were so much more intricate and intimate um, so why didn't I already know this? Why didn't I know what was going on in my own backyard? I'm relatively attuned and inclined toward these kinds of things. And that, that opened a bigger question, knowing that most people really don't see any of this or even really think about it. The question was, is that a natural destination of the human mind to, to be unaware of what lives around us? Are, are we really that limited? Or are we taught not to be interested? So the way that I tried to get at that question was to say, well, what are people taught in other cultures? And I, and I looked at, uh, you know, traditional teachings. Uh, the, the whole world now is, is homogenized and westernized to a very large extent. But originally, people in different cultures were taught very different things. So I, mm. I, I looked at what, what are people taught about the human place in nature and, and in the universe. And what I found was that there are, there are arguably uh, around four cultural realms that you know, can make some sense of a, a huge question like this. W one is, indigenous people around the world, people who have a long history in a landscape. They, they have very diverse cultures. I mean, just think about um, people in the Arctic, you know, Inuit people in the Arctic and uh, indigenous people in the Amazon, tremendous diversity of culture, but, but a tremendous commonality about the idea that all living things are related that, that they're all part of a family, that other animals have perception and agency, that the world is the most holy and sacred place, that, that everything that is spirit and material is of this world. If I, if I look in South Asian religions, I, I started finding the same kinds of things about relationality and, and about the human role in keeping the balances together. Uh, East Asian philosophies, very similar. The, in East Asia, a perception that the diversity that we see and what may seem like opposites are necessary to create the whole thing. So you cannot have up without down or forward without backward or hot without cold. You can't have life without death. These things are actually not opposites. They're just the, the, the ranges that make up the whole and they are necessary for the whole thing. But then in Greece, a totally different story took hold, which is that humans are the only thing that matters, that the world is not at all a sacred or holy place, that the world is not really even a very nice place. It's full of decay and suffering and disease and that humans can think. And so we are better than the whole world, that the, the animals, the plants, the whole world is here for us. We can use it any way we want. And Plato had this idea of the ideal versus the real. So that what he thought and what he imagined as ideals were, were actually opposed to what is. And, and that, is, that is the dualism that you referred to. And this dualism um, really defines our entire view of everything. It's the, not only the ideal versus the real, it's, it's man against nature, it's man against woman, it is us against them, it's me against you. Mm. We're, we're not all in this together, uh, and um, our soul doesn't even want to be in this world. It wants to escape to the perfect place. That view had a lot of critics in its time, but um, the people who liked it 
happened to be the people who were creating the the views of uh, our major religions of, of Judaism and especially Christianity the early Christian theologians were quoting Plato and uh, all of this kind of got shifted around a little bit to the idea that Plato's single creator of perfection became our concept uh, in Western religion of God the the perfect place outside of the world and outside of space and time is heaven his soul that is trapped in us that he imagined that only wants to get out and cannot wait for us to die is is the soul that is supposed to be focused not on this world but in getting out of here and going to heaven um and that is not a those are not views that are compatible with the idea of taking care of a world that is part of our living family so the western view is a real outlier in all of that thinking uh, uh, throughout human history mm. but but it has globalized it, and it strikes me the, the way you describe it how that 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 dualist viewpoint is one that that humans can also use to create power amongst themselves. One can create tiers upon tiers upon tiers of this, and that it can be utilized in ways to both separate us from nature, but separate us from each other, from class divisions, from religious divisions. It's a to me, it seems like a whole new way of of approaching our relationships to almost anything. Does does that make sense? Yeah, well, Plato was not a fan of democracy, and he thought that there are people who should rule and people who should work by their very nature. Um, and, and in fact, some of the autocrats of Europe, the, the monarchs, they really liked Plato because, you know, he was saying that there are people who, by nature and by divine right, should be the rulers. They're entitled to that. Um, even in modern China, the, 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 the government of modern China is a fan of Plato because of the same kind of thinking. Hmm. I mean, this is also really fascinating. I, I was a philosophy undergraduate and studied a lot of Greek philosophy, but the way it was presented was that the Greeks were this incredibly special, enlightened society, that it was we, we should thank them for what they offered us in terms of the rise of Western civilization. So it's important that you are framing this in a very different way, but I think in a very important way that's not often discussed. There were a lot of good things that people came up with in ancient Greece. The idea that we should, um, well, first of all, they had all these gods and goddesses that were having soap operas somewhere up in, presumably in the sky, just mm -hmm. like people all jealous and um, seeking uh, retribution, revenge, and all this kind of stuff. Uh, and uh, that was a Greek idea. And then the next Greek idea was, no, that's a bunch of nonsense. Let's try to find out how the world and the universe actually work. Maybe the sun's not a god. Maybe we should see what in the world or out of the world the sun actually is and how it works. Um, this was the beginning of the idea of free rational inquiry. Mm. Maybe the most important idea that has ever occurred to people. Um, people had some amazing insights about the universe must have started with one thing that expanded well now now we call that idea the big bang they had people who developed uh ato an atomic theory uh, noticing that as far as we can see everything is made of smaller components there must be really small components that we can't even see hmm. or detect with our senses and our senses are really no good to detect the most funda fundamental nature of nature. But they had no way of testing the, uh, these ideas for almost 2,000 years before um, the scientific method and experimentation became a thing. So they had nothing stronger than to debate these ideas among themselves. And many of those ideas conflicted. And then Plato came along with 
his ideas, which um, not only, in my view, were very wrong and very unhelpful, but catastrophic to the history of the world in the way that they have panned out. I remember when I spoke to you before, you you said something I thought that was really, really wonderful. You said, if you ever are, are feeling bored or just want to feel more connected to nature or see things, just put up a bird feeder in your backyard and you'll be you'll be amazed at what comes to life. I, I love that. And I wonder if there were other ways or pieces of advice you give to listeners to to kind of reinvest in their backyards if they have a backyard or a park or a way to to kind of bring alive the wonder of the natural world that is so close to them. Well, if you have a backyard or any place, even even a terrace or anything where you can begin by planting something that lived there, used to live there, something native to the place because uh, one of one of the one of the big things that is going on right now is uh, plummeting populations of insects and a lot of insects and, and a lot of the diversity of insects is because they were very very finely attuned to very specific native plants the, the, those plants are now you know mostly interspersed very sparsely within a tremendous mix of exotics and, and other things, ornamentals that people plant. And there's just no place for native insects to really live. And we see, uh, uh, well, and the other thing is that a lot of people just use a lot of pesticides on their lawns and gardens. I, I see it in my life and in my neighborhood right here. It used to be, uh, and many people have commented on this kind of a thing, it used to be that in the summertime under any street light, there would be a big cloud of bugs often you would see bats going through eating the bugs. There are quite a few times now where I see not one moth under a streetlight. And that is a tremendous, it's a tremendous change. And it has all kinds of ramifications because almost all of the birds feed their young ones insects, even the ones that are like finches that are, are specialists in seed eating but they but they feed their babies insects and if there are no insects that's one of the reasons that north america has lost three billion birds since i was in high school a quarter of all the birds and i live on the east coast here where in the fall the migration is very apparent and the and the change of the, the numbers of birds from the time that i was in my late teens to now is is very obvious. I know you also have thoughts on on not just the animal life around us, but about human population and that's impact on all of this. I, I wonder if you would share any of your thoughts in terms of where you see us as a species going. Well, human population is the driver of all of these things. It's the population and it's common, you know, 8 billion people. That's a tripling of the number of people since I was born. It wasn't like when I was born, there weren't enough people around. And it wasn't like they didn't have all kinds of problems with one another already. So I don't see the tripling of the number of people as, as making the world three times better than it was. And in a way, if you if you look at the trends in population, the, the population is sort of scheduled to begin stabilizing. Birth rates have gone down a lot. And almost all of this has nothing to do with people caring about population or caring about uh, the effects of population density on other creatures. It's mostly because of gains in, um, in uh, women's rights and empowerment and their ability mainly to make family planning decisions and want to be more educated. So all of those things are extremely good. That is probably the biggest source of injustice in the world that is getting better over the years. Uh, but, but we still have 8 billion people and climbing. And that means that there's just very little room for other living things. Um, we, we use about uh, almost half of the land area for crops and for grazing. 
we um, continue to cut forests down, mostly for more cows or more crops. And wildlife, pop wildlife populations around the world have plummeted by more than half since I was in high school. Now, that's a very gross measure, obviously. There are some things that have had spectacular recoveries, but in general, in the main, in aggregate, wildlife um, has, has really taken a beating during my lifetime because uh, there are just not enough places to live anymore. And populations shrink, and when habitat gets fragmented, a lot of populations just start to collapse. Well, as we return to where we started, I, I guess I want to hear about how you think Alfie is doing. I mean, could, could, you, could you tell us just the story of, of letting her go into the wild and kind of where, where you hope this creature is at this point? Yeah, absolutely. We, we live on uh, an unremarkable amount of land around our house about two-thirds of an acre or something like that. Behind us is about a 30-acre woodland, so it's not really packed in and really sterile. But Alfie and uh, her family have been able to live right around here. She has had two different mates. She had a mate for, for the first two years, and then something happened to him he did not return the third year she you know her hormones were cycling normally and she laid four eggs in 2022 that were not fertile because she had no mate that was very very sad springtime um, but this year she had a new mate she laid five eggs four of them hatched all of them fledged so she has put a total of 10 little owls out in the world from our backyard in our kind of crowded place here. And um, all, all it takes is a little accommodation. Uh, I, I think uh, a, a slight desire to reconnect can really go a long way and can take you very far if you let it. Does she still feel like, like family to you in any kind of way? She, she's still completely tame. I mean, that's the kind of crazy thing about it. Um, she has absolutely no fear of us. Right at this moment, she is snoozing in her usual spot that we call the ivy tower. Mm. It's a, a maple stump from a huge old maple. The, the stump is about 15 feet tall, so it's a very tall stump. It's festooned with a big cascade of ivy. And she likes to sleep in there, and she's in there right now. And that is, um, I'm looking at it, it's not more than 20 feet away from where I'm talking to you, right outside this room. And uh, we, we see her quite a lot. We hear her calling quite a lot. We were hearing her mate last month. I haven't heard him recently. But the, the males always seem to make themselves very scarce in the non-breeding season. And once in a while, she'll just come to hang out very close to us, which is very magical. I mean, that's really the best word I can use for it. It just feels magical that this owl who has known us all our lives has become a fully competent, capable mother doing her part in the great chain of being that has been unbroken for all these millions of years and that she will still sometimes choose to just come and land a few feet away from where I might be if I'm outside at night. It's been a pleasure to be joined by Carl Safina. He's the author most recently of Alfie and Me, What Owls Know, What Humans Believe. Carl, thank you so much for joining us again on Life Examine. Oh, well, this is a great show, and I love talking to you. So thank you so much for having me back to KCRW. Still to come, ears, eyes, feathers, what makes owls so unique? That's after this short break. Introducing the KCRW Donation Car, designed to be recycled. This first-of-its-kind vehicle will save you time, space, and hassle by disappearing. 
Enjoy the luxury and comfort of turning your underused car into a donation worth hundreds, even thousands of dollars. The KCRW Donation Car. Already in your garage, driveway, or on cinder blocks outside your house. Act now at kcrw.com cars. I'm Jonathan Bastian, back with Life Examined on KCRW. We just heard author Carl Safina describe the magical feeling he gets from still seeing Alfie, the little owl he rescued, hanging out in his backyard. So what exactly makes an owl so unique, the subject of poems, folklore, and mysteries? Why do some cultures regard an owl as bad luck, an omen of evil and death, while others see an owl as a symbol of wisdom and prosperity? Joining me next is Jennifer Ackerman, science writer and the author of What an Owl Knows. Jennifer Ackerman, welcome to Life Examine. It's great to have you. Oh, it's my pleasure. So as somebody who's written so extensively about birds in general, I, I love that you decided to focus on owls. And, and if I could, like, if, if you had like the one liner, the party line about why owls are so incredible or what blew your mind, like how, how would you begin to explain these wondrous creatures to us? Well, you know, I love birds, all birds. I've been writing about them for some time, but you know, owls, they're just so unique in the bird world. They're mm. they're really skilled night hunters. They have this very eerie, quiet flight and these very extraordinary senses, their hearing and their vision. And um I was fascinated by the the fascination that humans have had with these birds for literally tens of thousands of years. You know, they they show up in our, our myths and our stories, our symbols and cultures around the world. Um, so you know, when I started to think about writing a book about owls, it my head just really began to bubble with questions. Mm. You know, it was like, what makes an owl an owl? And really, yeah. how did these birds get to be the way they are? They're so different from other birds. Right. And that's, I think, what kind of jumps out at me when I think about an owl, which is that um, they have such an utterly unique look to them. And, and they kind of take our breath away when we see them or when we notice how camouflaged they are in a tree. It, we're overcome with amazement, right? There's something about these creatures that capture our attention. Truly. I mean, part of it is they they look a little bit like us. You know, they have this these rounded heads and these forward-facing eyes. So there's a sort of human-like aspect to them. And I think that's kind of fascinating. And also they, you know, they 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 operate at night. They have this um incredible ability to um to hunt it in the dark. And um really one of my um my my fascination with owls goes back to a, an encounter. Uh, with an owl when my children were little, I had a um, I had mounted an owl box on a, an old maple tree behind our house, you know, just kind of hoping an owl would show up there. And it was just mm. a few yards from our kitchen window uh, where we could get a good view of it. And sure enough, one fall we got lucky and this little eastern screech owl took up residence in that box. And it would during the day, it would just kind of roost with its little round head showing from the hole. <laughs> yeah. And at night, it would vanish, you know, presumably off to, to hunt. And I never saw it come and go. But in the morning, we would see little bits of prey hanging out of the round hole in that box. So oh. Sometimes it was the, the wing of a robin or the tail of a blue jay. Um, and my, my daughters really got their first lesson in, in sort of apex predators because... <laughs> <laughs> whatever bit of prey was hanging out of the box would kind of jerk and jerk and jerk oh, until it vanished uh -huh. into the hole, you know? Um, and it was, you know, pulled in by that hungry little owl. So I was just fascinated by this owl's hunting skill and its stealth, its um, camouflage, its quiet. And yes, it's, you know, so the, the, the kind of focus of our obsession for so many thousands of years. Mm. So when you think about kind of the, the science of an owl, for lack of a better word, but, but what makes it so kind of successful in its ability, for example, to be an apex predator, to move so well at night, like how do you and what did you learn about this owl that, that really demonstrated the fact that this is a very unique species? Yes. Well, um, you know, owls are really, they're astonishingly skilled hunters for, for basically three reasons. Their, their vision, their hearing, and this exceptionally quiet flight that they have. Um, I like to tell people, you know, owls have eyes that are huge for their body size. And if, if 
our eyes were in similar proportion to our bodies as an owl's eyes are to its body, they'd be about the size of an orange, you know, and they'd weigh about four pounds. So really big eyes. Um, And they have forward facing eyes. So that gives them binocular vision and their retinas are super sensitive to light. So owls can see in very, very dim light. Their, Their pupils can swell to almost the entire size of the eye. And that lets in about twice as much light as human pupils. And they also have a super abundance of of those light collecting cells called rods. Um, So night hunting owls, they have about 100 times the light sensitivity of, say, you know, a a day active bird like a pigeon. Hmm. So, I mean, it it would be probably safe to say that they, they literally see the world very differently than we do. Yes, indeed. They see and they hear it differently. You know, they the owls that hunt by ear, like um, barn owls and great gray owls, they have they are just exquisitely sensitive to sound, and they actually have heads that are kind of tailored for listening. They have these flat facial discs, and that they act kind of like a big uh, external ear. It's almost like a a feathered satellite dish that collects sound and channels it toward their ears, which are just little holes in the sides of their heads. But what's inside those ears is really um, quite astonishing. It's the the hearing organs in their brain. Um, they're called cochlea. They're just really, really long. You know, they're they're easily three or four times the length of the cochlea in other birds. And they're packed with the, these hearing cells, hair cells, We um, they're called. And that they give, like, for instance, a barn owl, a sense of hearing that's almost unequaled in the animal world. Interesting. I mean, I, I, I noticed you use the phrase, it's as if they can see sound, which to me seemed really fascinating. What does that mean? Well, it, it is, um, in some regards, it's almost literal. They have a, um, the anatomists have discovered that the um, part of the, the visual nerve uh, or the hearing nerve in the brain goes to the optical center in an owl's brain. So um, it, it actually be getting um, a visual picture of the sounds that it hears. Uh, but the, the other way that it um, it kind of sees sound is by uh it has a some species of owls have asymmetrically placed ears so one is higher than the other and that gives them the ability to really precisely locate the source of even the faintest noise in a three-dimensional space all of this i i take it uh, creates a, a species that is remarkably good at at catching prey right i mean this is kind of the idea of perhaps why this this bird developed in, in this exquisite way yes they are really um skilled hunters and they are not only able to detect their prey well but they're able to sneak up on it <laughs> ah. and that's a, a a unique capacity for owls as well you know they uh they have their wings and feathers are really so brilliant at quieting the sound of their flight um, that they can they can approach a prey nearly silently without alerting it. And that silent flight also allows them to hear the, the very faint noises of their prey. So this is another adaptation that, that really makes them these incredibly skilled hunters. Well, the camouflaged, we haven't quite discussed yet, but it, it, that is one thing, you know, this is like a photo I see on Instagram a lot. It, it looks like it's just a tree, like a stump of a tree, but it's an owl head, right? And it, 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 every time it amazes me, is it that they really, you know, over thousands of years learn to blend in like with the exact the color and hue of the tree in which they live? How, how did that happen? Yeah, so I mean, it it's one of those miracles of, of um, natural selection and adaptation that they they got to be so um, camouflaged in the habitats where they live. So you you look at something like a a, a great gray owl against a large tree, and it literally disappears. Yeah. Um, and there's some research that suggests that at some point in evolution, they, these birds had much brighter, more colorful feathers. But over time, over natural selection and evolution, they um, they started to to evolve these very well camouflaged feathers. And um, it's now it's just remarkable. I, I've spent a lot of time in the field and. And picking out these birds in their environment is just so challenging. They always see you before you see them. 
Um, but it it makes the the research on these birds very, very challenging indeed. You know, they're just so cryptic and so secretive uh, that they're they're very hard to even find, uh, much less to study. Mm. And they have, of course, the the very, the very distinct hoot, and which is, I think, kind of unlike anything else one hears. Is is there anything we know about why they make that that very kind of beautiful but eerie sound that we associate with an owl? Yes. So, you know, the hoot of an owl, it's really one of the, the few bird calls that most people can know that they're yeah. familiar with. Um, but as it turns out, you know, one of the things I learned in the book is that um, a hoot is really not just a hoot. There, It was a, such a delightful surprise mm. to discover that owls actually have this very elaborate vocal repertoire. And it um, has, and their vocalizations have all kinds of meanings. So they have um, greeting hoots, they have territorial hoots, they have um, what's called emphatic hoots, and they don't just hoot; they also, you know, chitter and squawk and squeal, and all of these different calls. Um, they communicate really specific information about an owl's sex, its size, its weight, um, even its individual identity and, you know, its state of mind. Uh, and they use their calls in very specific um, uh, contexts for very specific purposes. So it's really um, uh, a very elaborate vocal repertoire and uh, and very interesting indeed. Yeah. Is it safe to say that, in a sense, maybe we don't we don't associate the the family of birds with having a distinct language or the ability to communicate clearly like it just kind of sounds like song to us or repetition but but you as someone who has studied birds for so many years perhaps could answer this better and say you know what is the level of a sophistication whether it's between owls or just birds in general yes well it it varies tremendously from mm. from family to family species to species uh, but the level of communication is far more sophisticated than we ever imagined. Um, birds, their their songs and their calls, uh, the territorial hoots of an owl are um, really packed with information. And we're just beginning to sort out what that information is. Uh, one of the very cool things about the territorial hoots of an owl is um, is that they're they're highly individual, they're highly distinctive. Um, and these owls, they use their hoots to recognize one another by voice alone. So they can identify their kin and they can um, communicate with their mates, their allies, their rivals. Everybody knows who is associated with a particular hoot. Um, and now that we know this, researchers can also identify individual owls um, just by their unique territorial hoots, you know, out there in the living in the woods. And um, that means that they can they can monitor the populations of these owls more accurately. And that's really important tool for conservation. But it also means that, that, that researchers can actually observe by listening, you know, all the social lives of owls, who's mating with whom and whether pairs are in fact staying together. What I what I sit with in the way that you describe an owl is is almost this idea of almost like a perfect species, like something that is that is so kind of dramatically good at what it does, that is blended so perfectly and is so silent and has such such incredible abilities to hear and to see that in a sense it doesn't surprise me that they've captured our fascination and as a result that you know. As you said in the beginning of our interview, they have for thousands of years. I mean, I'd love to just hear a little bit about how you saw them appearing in mythology or stories, because they I think they're quite symbolic in that way. Yes, they are. And the first thing I want to say is that there's a tremendous diversity of owls. They're close to 260 species, and they they range very widely in size and appearance. So there's, there's a, mm. a big range of owls. And, um, you know, they live everywhere around the globe um, in just about every habitat, um, in grasslands, in rainforests, in um, boreal forests, and on every continent except Antarctica. And, um, and you know, it turns up that, that they're really very vibrant players in um, uh, stories and symbols from from cultures on nearly every continent. And um, the attitudes toward them really vary tremendously around the, the world. Um, 
some cultures, uh, I think of the ancient Greeks, or, uh, you know, they really uh, revered owls, saw them as symbols of wisdom and prosperity. The Ainu people of northern Japan, they really revere the Blackestin's fish owl, which is the biggest owl in the world. They consider them the kind of protectors of their villages. Uh, But there are other cultures that really see owls as emblems of evil, as kind of witches or Mm. bad omens that are are linked with death. Um, And in Belize, for instance, owls are are viewed as these these bearers of bad luck. So if an owl comes to your house and calls, it means that someone's going to get sick or die. And that view of owls is actually, or slight variations of it, is is really quite a prevalent perspective in in many countries around the world, in Zambia, Kenya, Nepal, and, Mm. and other places. Well, finally, I mean, do you think there are other things that we can learn from owls? I mean, whether it's their incredible senses, the way they move, I mean, do they do they tell us something else about ways to live or things we can learn from in the world? Yes, I I really see in owls a um, a model of how we might move through the world with more subtlety and nuance mm. and quiet. I think of them as these really um, uh, beautifully subtle creatures and their. Um, and their capacity sort of to, to take in the world around them without being seen. I just love that. Um, and I, you know, what I hope people will take away from this book is this is a, a kind of refreshed curiosity and awe about these birds that they're, they are so subtle and so skilled and really ingenious. Um, and also to, to care even more about their, their survival and, and, uh, you know, support, work that's going on to to conserve these birds and their habitats. It's been such a joy to chat with Jennifer Ackerman, science writer and author of several books on birds, including What an Owl Knows, which we discussed today, also The Bird Way and the Genius of Birds. Jennifer, thank you so much. I, I feel like I was out in the trees with these beautiful creatures today. So thanks for, thanks for describing them for us so beautifully. Uh, thank you. It was my delight. All right, that's it for this week. The producer of Life Examined is Andrea Brody. We'd love to connect with you on Facebook. You can find a link to the group at kcrw.com slash lifeexamined. And while you're there, you can also find our full archive. So make sure to check out some of our older shows as well. You can connect with me directly on Instagram. I'm at Jonathan W. Bastion. And there you'll find weekly videos and a whole lot of other ways to stay connected to the show throughout the week. Have a wonderful day. Thanks as always for joining us on KCRW and we'll see you next week. Take care.